Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 474, continuing on with John Harrison and the uh, striving for the solution of, of longitude. Um, welcome to uh, welcome to part three. Uh, we're going to start with the uh, Brockles B Park clock. This is the first town clock or a stable clock. It was a stable clock that Harrison ever made. And it was out of wood, and it had the grasshopper escapement. So let's start there tonight. Let's continue on. Part 3, John Harrison. The Harrison brothers' first major clock-making project, and an important early commission for them was a revolutionary turret clock made in the 1720s for the stables at Broxby Park, the seat of the Pelham family. The clock, which also was constructed almost entirely of oak, was revolutionary because it needed no lubrication. Even modern clock oils tend to thicken with age, to creep away from where they needed and then they would turn acidic and even evaporate. This was the tale of the oils. Mostly deriving from animal fats, 18th century oils were particularly poor and tended to be one of the major causes of clocks failing to work. So with no formal education, John Harrison was always a radical thinker. Instead of worrying about ways to improve the oil, he produced a clock that did not need it. The first of its kind and one of only a few ever to be made. Harrison was particularly adept at selecting only the best materials for an application and again employed boxwood. This time for the bearings of the clock, which in combination with brass pivots, provided a very effective oil-free bearing surface. Later, he discovered that a dense, greasy, tropical hardwood, lignum vitae, again in combination with brass, would perform even better in this application. The clock originally had an anchor escapement, but Harrison soon improved, uh, improved upon this with a new invention, the grasshopper escapement which employed no sliding actions and therefore did not require oil. The escapement was given this particular name because of the action of its pallets. To avoid sliding actions, which would need lubrication, these pallets, made of oak, are designed to jump out of the escapement after each impulse, their action being reminiscent of the hind legs of a grasshopper. So as well as being exceptionally well-designed, The Brocklesby Park clock is exceptionally beautifully made, revealing Harrison's first-rate skills as a joiner and cabinet maker. Over 280 years after its construction, the clock is still at Brocklesby Park, continuing to run reliably and keep excellent time and is still without the need of lubrication. Let's move into Precision Pendulum Clocks by Harrison. After much success, Harrison continued to develop more accurate and reliable clock designs. By the mid-1720s, under his direction, James Harrison started to work on a set of precision pendulum clocks, smaller, long-case versions of the turret clock, to see just how far they could push the capabilities of their design. On the outside, these clocks look like Harrison's early long-case clocks, But in detail, they are very different indeed. 
Like the turret clock, they run without lubrication. Having smaller versions of his grasshopper escapement and use them using lignum vitae bearings. The wheelwork is still oak, but now the pinions are made of little lignum vitae rollers mounted on brass pins. So the wheel teeth are actually rolling contact during the meshing process. Three of these precision long case clocks have survived, being dated 1726, 1727, and 1728 with the latter on display at the Clockmakers Museum in London. Harrison's victory over the problem of lubrication by eliminating the problem itself was ingenious, but not typical of his scientific methodology. His usual approach was to accept the presence of an enemy and negate the effect by compensating for it. Using this more typical method, he eliminated another significant error in these precision pendulum clocks. That is caused by the effects of the temperature change. Temperature compensation. Clocks go slower when the weather gets warmer because the pendulum rod expands and lengthens, and longer pendulums beat more slowly than shorter ones. For a clock to keep time consistently, the pendulum's effective length must not change. The effective length is the distance between the point of suspension and the center of gravity. Harrison solved the problem of temperature change by inventing a pendulum that, instead of a simple rod, has a gridiron made up of alternating series of brass and steel rods. The steel rod's downward expansion being counteracted by the upward expansion of the brass rods. In this brilliantly clever design, all the rods are expanding, counteracting each other. The effective length of the pendulum remains the same, and it continues to keep time. As a result, Harrison tells that, the, that these early pendulum clocks achieve the astonishing accuracy of a variation of no greater than one second a month, a performance far exceeding the best London clocks of the day. Moreover, because the clocks had no oil, they maintained their performance for much longer than conventional clocks. Harrison developed two of these clocks in his workshop in tandem. His ingenious scientific method being to use one of the clocks as a control while he made adjustments and improvements to the other. Then switching the clocks and using the improved clock as the control while the other was adjusted. Both of these clocks were employed as regulators to test his other clocks. He tells us that, in order to time them precisely, he used a passage of stars across the sky at night. This highly ingenious method was suggested in Sutherland's lectures, Harrison doubtless learning from it from the copy of these. So using this method, Harrison was able to gauge time to a remarkable precision of a twentieth of a second. Marine timekeepers. A simple calculation based on the terms of the Longitude Act tells us that, in order to qualify for the main long longitude prize of two or twenty thousand pounds, a timekeeper would have to keep time with a variation of no greater than two point eight seconds per day. Before seventeen fifty. 
the only available portable timepieces, watches, were hopelessly inaccurate. Even the very highest quality watches of that period lost or gained at least a minute per day. The only timepieces capable of the required accuracy were large pendulum clocks, fixed rigidly on the walls like Harrison's regulators. Therefore, given the options to them, potential designers of marine timekeepers, such as Harrison, saw only one logical course of action. To win the longitude prize, they would have to make a portable version of a pendulum clock. As we shall see, however, this progressive and apparently logical approach was not the correct one, but no one realized any of this at the time. So, in the following few years, Harrison therefore formulated a plan for a large marine timekeeper, and it is recorded that he visited London in 1727 through 28 to seek support to make it. Harrison himself certainly tells us that he came south at about the same time to seek funding and moral support for the effort, taking with him drawings and a written description of his proposal for the timekeeper. Harrison's biographer, Humphrey Quill, suggests that this visit was more likely to have been two or three years later. In 1730, as a manuscript description of his first marine timekeeper, dated that year, has survived, and also suggested it. In 1730, manuscript, of which little was known, is now preserved in the Clockmaker's Company collection. However, it is just as likely that Harrison did come to London in 1727 or 28 with preliminary sketches and the 1730 manuscript, which is very carefully worded and illustrated is a refined version, the result of further development and advice possibly intended for use on a follow-up visit to London. Whichever year the, the, the first visit was, Harrison records that he went initially to Greenwich to seek the advice of the Astronomer Royal. At that time, the Astronomer Royal was Edmund Haley of Comet fame, who received Harrison very kindly. According to Harrison, Despairing of every, ever competing the lunar tables containing the data required for the lunar distance method, Haley, however, not being in any way horologically qualified, felt unable to judge the soundness of his plans and suggested that Harrison go directly to London to see George Graham. George Graham had been a partner of the great Thomas Tompion, the father of time, and was, at that time, the greatest and most highly respected maker of watches, clocks, and instruments. Haley, therefore, warned Harrison to be brief and to the point, be succinct. It is clear that Harrison was not the best at expressing himself succinctly, but what with making his clocks from wood and being based in the wilds of Lincolnshire, one can fully understand that someone as busy and important as Graham may have initially been prejudiced in his assessment of whom he was dealing with. Harrison, having arrived at 10, was still discussing timekeeper design with Graham at dinner in Graham's house late into the evening. Graham even extended an offer of a loan to support Harrison's work. A greater demonstration of confidence could not be imagined by anyone. 
It is interesting to speculate that at what point the ice broke in their discussion and which particular thoughts or methods impressed the other great watchmaker. It is known that, since at least 1710, Graham himself had been trying to design a pendulum with temperature compensation using brass and steel rods, but he had not been able to work out and how to do it properly. So in the end, he came up with another system using mercury in a glass jar as the bob of the pendulum. So no doubt when Harrison discusses how he designed his compensation pendulum, Graham realized this was no ordinary country carpenter. On returning to Barrow, Harrison spent the next five years or so with his brother James, constructing the extraordinary timekeeper known today as H1. After a preliminary but rigorous test on a barge on the River Humber, Harrison felt ready to move to have the machine tested more formally. H1 was brought to Graham in London and publicly displayed to the scientific community, where it became quite the celebrity Hugely impressed all who inspected, it was widely regarded as one of the wonders of the ages. Both scientists and, and socialites besieged Harrison with a request to see the timekeeper. It is also possible that some came to see the Harrison, the man himself, the curiosity from the country, the ingenious clockmaker. In 1735, the Royal Society issued a certificate of H1's great potential, which persuaded the authorities to grant the new timekeeper some form of trial. Up until his death eight years before, Newton reviewed the viability of all such proposals, but now it fell into the admiralties and other advisors to recommend to the first lord of the admiralty that Harrison and his timekeepers should be giving a semi-official trial. Therefore, it was that H1 and its maker sailed on board the warship Centurion to Lisbon in May of 1736. So before departing, the ship's captain, George Proctor, wrote that he found Harrison a very sober, very industrious, with, <clears throat> with a very modest, but a very modest man, but he feared that uh, the sea would be the difficulty in measuring the time, which truly gives him great concern from the honest man and makes me fear for his attempted possibilities. So after a week-long voyage in tempestuous weather, Proctor wrote from Lisbon that Harrison was seasick with all, but seemed satisfied that the motion of the ship was not at least detrimental to that of its keeping true time. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing off. Thanks for listening to our episode of John Harrison Part 3.